Welcome to some more great Bible preaching from the pulpit of Capital City Baptist Church in the heart of Austin, Texas. Our prayer is that your relationship with Christ is strengthened and that you are blessed by the time you spend in the Word of God with us today. Take your Bibles, turn to the Gospel of John, chapter number 13. The Gospel of John, chapter 13. I'm interested this morning in chapter 13, and chapter 14, and chapter 15, and chapter 16, and chapter 17. But I want to take my thought from chapter 13 through chapter 17. When you get to John chapter 13, you are a little bit halfway through the gospel of John, but he has already reached the final hours of the life of Christ. It is the last week of Christ. In fact, in John 13, it is the night before the crucifixion. The scene is the upper room on the night of the betrayal in which Jesus gives a final discourse to his disciples before leading them out to Gethsemane. The other gospel writers get us to this scene, but they get us there at the end of their gospel. John skips through entire sections of the life of Christ so that he can get to this scene, and when he gets to this scene, he stops and spends the next five or six chapters dealing with this particular scene. There was something about the upper room discourse that he really wanted us to pay particular attention to. In John chapter 1, John's gospel, he told us that there would be two responses to the Lord's ministry. In John chapter 1 and verse number 11, he said that he came into his own and his own received him not. The next verse says, but to as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. John chapter 1 through 12, the first 12 chapters of the book, tells you about those who did not receive him. In fact, the last verse of chapter 12, verse 37 says, Though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him. In chapter 13, he turns from those who have rejected Christ and turns his focus on those who have received Christ. And in chapter 13, Jesus retreats into a secret place with his disciples who have cast their lot with him. And he begins to teach them something in an intimate moment that outsiders cannot be privy to. In Jesus' final week, he gave two very lengthy discourses. One of them is found in Matthew chapter 24 and chapter 25. It's called the Olivet Discourse. In that discourse, he explains to the disciples the horrors of the tribulation that is going to come upon them because of the rejection of him as their Messiah. In John 13 through 17, he gives what is called the Paschal Discourse. And instead of describing the horrors that is to come upon unbelieving Israel, what he describes here are some blessings and some promises that he's going to leave his followers that will sustain them in the time of his absence. With his disciples gathered around the table at the Passover meal, he begins a very lengthy private discourse and he gives to them some promises, some principles that will sustain them in dark days. You see, first the cross, then the resurrection, and then he knows that he's going to return to the Father. 
And for the greater part of three years, these disciples have spent every waking moment with the Lord Jesus. They have walked with Him. They have talked with Him. They have ate with Him. They have relied on Him for everything, both physical and spiritual. He has taught them. He has comforted them. He has rebuked them, but in just a few days, He's returning to the Father, and He's going to leave them with a monumental task, but He's not going to leave them alone. He's going to leave them with the Holy Spirit. And he's going to leave them with some promises, what I'm calling an inheritance in these chapters, that will sustain them in dark days ahead. The promise is that I'm going to come back. But in my absence, you've got to carry on. You've got to take this gospel message to the world. You've got to live as I've commanded you. And I'm going to leave you an inheritance that will help you, that will strengthen you, that will comfort you, that will keep you going until the day that I return. If you were to read John 13 through 17, sometimes we read it like a dry theological discourse. But I think there was a lot of emotions in this scene. The disciples are fearful. They're scared. They're anxious. They're uncertain. Jesus himself carries the weight of knowing that the cross is just a couple of hours away. He has the love and the sympathy in his heart toward his disciples. There's a lot of emotions in this scene. And so Jesus says, before I go to the cross, in my last moments with you, I want to leave you something that will help you in my absence. I'm not a prophet of doom. I'm not a doomsday preacher. I don't have a negative outlook on life. These are exciting times to live, but you'd have to have your head in the sand to know, to not know that we're living in dark days. I don't believe that there's going to be a worldwide revival. I believe there's going to be a worldwide apostasy before Jesus comes back. And I believe that if the Lord tarries and things continue as they're going, it could get darker days for you and I as a child of God. But we are to carry on. We are to take the gospel to the world. We are to live as God has commanded us and he has left us some things in these verses that if you can get a hold of them, they'll help you in dark days. Now I've gone through these chapters and I've identified about nine different possessions that I've been left in this inheritance. I do not have time uh, to go through all nine of them this morning. And so I'm going to take about three or four of them just to give you an idea of what I'm talking about. The first one is found in John chapter 14, verse 1 through 3. I'm calling it the hope of heaven. John chapter 14 and verse number 1. Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Now that's a very familiar passage on the subject of heaven. You know it well. And what a comforting thought. What a comforting thought to know that one day all of God's children are going to be gathered together in that blessed place called heaven. Sometimes you hear somebody say, heaven help us, and the truth is that heaven does help us. Whatever your lot is in life, I promise you that a look at heaven will help you. Now I want you to back up to John chapter 13 for just a moment, and I want to give you some context to John 14. In John chapter 13, in verse number 31, Jesus said, therefore, when he was gone out, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. 
If God be glorified in him, God shall glorify him and also glorify him in himself and shall straightway glorify him. Verse 33. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. Ye shall seek me. And as I said unto the Jews, whither I go, ye cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have loved one another. Simon Peter said unto him, Lord, whither goest thou? Jesus answered him, Whither I go, thou canst not follow me now, but thou shalt follow me afterwards. G. Peter said unto him, Lord, why can I not follow thee now? I will lay down my life for thy sake. Jesus said, I'm going away. And you cannot come right now to where I'm going. Now in verse number 34, he gives them a new commandment. The new commandment is that you love one another. Now get this. Verse 31 and verse 32, I'm going away. Verse 33, I'm going away. Verse 34 through verse 35, a new commandment. On the heels of that new commandment in verse 36, Simon Peter speaks up and he answers what the Lord just said. And he said, Lord, whither goest thou? Peter has forgotten everything about verse 34 and verse 35 and his mind is back on verse number 33. Do you see that? He's still thinking about the Lord is going and you can't come and he totally missed verse 34 and verse 35. It's as if Peter is saying, Lord, what is the obstacle to me not being able to go where you're going? If it is death, then I, I'd be willing to lay down my life in order to be with you. He has totally skipped verse 34 and verse 35. So in verse number 36, Jesus answers him. And he says, Whither I go, thou canst not follow me now, but thou shalt follow me afterwards, which is exactly the same thing that he said in verse number 33, except for one little word. If you've ever underlined a word in your Bible, you have to underline one word in verse 36. Whither I go, thou canst not follow me now. Now. He didn't say that in verse 33. In verse 33, he is speaking to unbelieving Jews, and he said, as I said unto the Jews, those unbelieving Jews, that whither I go, ye cannot come. But in verse 36... He says, whither I go, thou canst not follow me now. If I've ever been thankful for one word in the Bible, it is that word now. If he had left out that one word, then there'd be no hope of heaven. And I get so blessed over that one little word, because of that one little word, I may not be able to come now, but soon, sooner or later, I will be able to come where he is. Amen. Well, I think that John 14 is probably a continuation of the conversation. Jesus didn't talk in chapter and verses, and, and, and I don't think that when he got to chapter 14, he took a five-minute break and took it back up. I, I think that they're pondering that. There's, there's probably a moment of silence. There's some uncertainty on their brow, and so Jesus picks it up in verse number 14 with these words, Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In verse number 3, I will come again and receive you unto myself. What a wonderful promise, the hope of heaven. In verse number 1, there is a new peace. Let not your heart be troubled, ye believe in God, believe also in me. Now you have to understand, the disciples are about to face the darkest week of their life. 
within merely hours, the one that they have forsaken all to follow is going to go to the cross at Calvary. He's going to be mocked and crucified on a Roman cross and for three days his body is going to lie in a cold grave and they will face so much fear in the next couple of hours that every one of them will run away. And on the eve of that, Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. It could be this morning that somebody comes into this church building with a troubled heart and your soul is overwhelmed with anxiety and with uncertainty and, and you have weak peace and it seems like that it can't be found. And I give you the words of Jesus, let not your heart be troubled. And here's what I love about it. During this conversation, the Lord's heart was troubled. In just a couple of hours, he's going to go to Gethsemane. And the Bible says that when he went to Gethsemane, that, that, that he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. He was in such anguish of spirit and soul, and, and knowing, knowing, not fearing the cross, but knowing that the cup of sin was about to be poured upon him, and that he who knew no sin was about to become sin, the Bible said. And that knowledge, that weight, was weighing heavy upon his heart. And in this time, he does not ask for their pity. He does not ask for their comfort. He does not ask for their sympathy. He instead sets his sorrow aside so that he might deal with their sorrow. And even though they could not enter into his feelings, he entered into their feelings. Though they could not carry his grief, he was able to carry their grief. His heart was big enough for his own sorrows as well as theirs as he could block out the sorrows of his heart to deal tenderly with the sorrows of their heart, he leaves them a new peace. In this promise in verse 2, there's a new place. In my Father's house are many mansions. You know, the Old Testament doesn't say a lot about heaven. The reason why is because the nation of Israel is an earthly people. In the Old Testament, he didn't promise them a home in heaven. He promised them an earthly millennial kingdom. They weren't anticipating a heavenly home. They were anticipating a heavenly kingdom. When you get to John chapter 14, this is the first time in the Bible that Jesus promises his disciples a home in heaven. In Luke chapter 19, heaven is called a country. In 1 Peter 1, it's called a kingdom. In Revelation chapter 21, heaven is called a city. But here's Jesus' name for it, my father's House. There's only two times that Jesus used that phrase in the gospel. The first time was in the gospel of John chapter 2. Well, the first time that Jesus came to Jerusalem, he, he went to the temple and he saw the money changers um, uh, making the temple a den of thieves. And the Bible says that he plowed a whip, a cord, and he drove the money changers out. And he said, make not my father's house and house of merchandise. The temple was the place where the Shekinah glory of God resided. It was the place where men came and worshipped God. And he called the temple my father's house. Three years later, he came back to that same temple in Matthew chapter 28. But this time, they're still, calling, still making it a den of thieves. And because of the apostasy of the Jewish religion, he didn't call it my father's house. This time, he said, behold, your house is left unto you desolate. The temple could no longer be called my father's house, but now he has taken that name and he has transferred it to the glorious abode above and said, we're going to my father's 
house. There's a new peace, there's a new place in verse 3, there's a new promise. He said, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there ye may be also. I love those four little words in verse number 3, I will come again. We call that the blessed hope of the believer. And the Holy Spirit has taken those four words and has built an entire eschatology around those four words. We sing songs about those four words. There are entire chapters in your Bible that is written about those four words, I will come again. I've heard a lot of preaching on verse number three where he says, I go and prepare a place for you. I will come again. And I've heard a lot of preaching about Jesus going and preparing a place for us physically. Makes good preaching. You know, Jesus is up in heaven and he's shining the golden doorknobs on my mansion and when it's ready, then he'll come get me. I don't know if that's exactly what he's talking about. I don't believe that Jesus was going to heaven to do a renovation project and when it's remodeled, then I'll come and get you. I don't believe that's what he's talking about, preparing a place. There's no imperfections in heaven. He doesn't have to repair anything. But he has prepared a place for me by securing for me and for you a right to entrance into heaven by his blood on the cross. He ascended to glory as my high priest and he's entered into the Holy of Holies with his blood and has secured a welcome for me in that land. And the old preacher used to sing the song that I will not be a stranger when I get to that country. He has given us the hope of heaven. No matter what this life throws at you, no matter how dark the days, if you know that heaven awaits you, it will strengthen and sustain you. In 1952, there was a girl named Florence Chadwick. She's a world-class swimmer. And one year, Florence Chadwick was going to break a world record and swim across the English Channel. It had never been done before, and she was the first to accomplish that. The day was set for her to try for the record books, and it was a freezing day off the California coast, and a heavy, dense fog had set in. There were a number of support boats around her as she started to swim uh, toward the coast and uh, had her parents and different support personnel. Florence Chadwick swam for 15 straight hours in the freezing ocean water absolutely exhausted. The problem was that the fog was so thick she couldn't see the shore. She couldn't see how far she had to go. For all she knew, she had swam a mile or eight miles. She, there was no way of knowing. And for 15 hours she swam and she wanted to quit and folks in the boats beside her encouraged her, don't quit, don't quit, you got to go on. But after 15 hours she finally gave up. They pulled her into the boat they pulled her into the boat. She was less than a half a mile from the shore. She had almost made it. At the press conference the next day, she said, um, she said, all I could see was the fog. I couldn't see how far I had to go. It was just fog. That was all I could see. She said, if I, if I could have just one time seen the shore, I think I could have made it. Sometimes I feel like Florence Chadwick. 
Sometimes I feel like that if I can just get a glimpse of that glory shore, then I can keep on going. Glory gives me strength to stay straight. And getting a fresh glimpse of glory, getting a fresh glimpse of heaven will help you through the fog, the hope of heaven. There's a second thing that we've been given in chapter 14 down in verse number 10 that was the promise of his power. John 14 and verse number 10, Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very works' sakes. Now watch verse number 12. Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me, the works that I do, shall he do also, and greater works works than these shall he do because I go unto my Father. Now when Jesus made that statement to those disciples, I don't know if they understood it or not. I know that it has been understood ever since he's made that statement. And it's been, it's been a theological pretzel for a lot of Bible students trying to figure out what Jesus meant when he said, greater works than these shall he Somebody said, well, that doesn't really apply to us. It applies just to the 12 disciples in the apostolic age, and so it really isn't to be applied to the church age. And I know there are passages that apply directly to the apostles, but the rest of John 13 through 17 applies to us, and I don't like cherry-picking off passages just because I don't understand it. Another person said, well, the word works in verse 12 is italicized, which means that it wasn't in the originals, and so Jesus didn't say the word works and just greater. So you read it, greater blank than these shall he do. That don't make sense to me either. I think you probably ought to leave the word in there as it is. Faith healers, charismatics, they love the verse. Because finally, finally they have scriptural proof for their doctrine of present day miracles but I don't think it's talking about miracles because I don't know of anybody that has done greater miracles than Jesus Christ. The apostles of the first century, they had miracle working power, but they didn't do greater works than Jesus. They didn't raise the dead. They didn't calm the storm. They didn't feed 5,000. I don't think it's more miracles. I don't think that it's greater miracles at all. So what is Jesus talking about here? How does that apply to you? Have you ever done greater works than Jesus did? Have you? that's the promise. It's the promise of power. In John chapter 13, Jesus has broken the news to his disciples that he's going to be leaving. John chapter 14, he gives this assurance that things are going to be better in his absence than in his presence. And he says, he says that in verse number 10, Believe it's not that I am the Father, the Father in me. The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself. The Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. Believe me that I am in the Father, the Father in me. Or else believe me for the very works' sakes. He that believeth on me, the works that I do, shall he do also. And greater works than these shall he do. Here's the phrase. Because I go unto my Father. If he does not leave, he does not prepare a place for us. If he doesn't go away, he can't answer prayers for us. If he doesn't go away, he can't send the Holy Spirit to live inside of us. If he doesn't go away, then we will never know the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. And the greater works that he's talking about is not greater miracles like doing more spectacular signs or more wonders, but it is doing greater works through the power of the Holy Spirit in people's 
the phrase, because I go unto my Father. Me, going to the Father, is going to provide the ground for you to be able to do greater works. Because when I go to the Father, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will empower you and me to do the works of the believer through His power, and those works will be greater works than the miracles that He performed on earth. In fact, in verse chapter 14 and verse 11, why did he do those works? He said, believe me that I am in the Father, the Father in me, or else believe me for the very works' sakes. The miracles that he performed was to demonstrate to the Jewish nation that he was the anointed one, that he was the Messiah, that he was the Son of God, and it was to lead them in faith to him. If you'll skip over to John chapter 5 for just a moment, the Gospel of John, chapter 5, and verse number 36. He says, I have greater witness than that of John. For the works which the Father hath given me to finish, the same works that I do, bear witness, that same works that I do, bear witness of me that the Father hath sent me. The works that I do, the miracles you've seen, is there to witness to the unbelieving Jew that I am sent of the Father which is one of the reasons, by the, way, by the way, that I don't believe in faith healers, modern-day faith healers, because all that it does is produce faith in the faith healer. It doesn't produce faith in Jesus, and that was the purpose of the works. In John chapter 5, the Jews were upset, and they're mad because Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath day. They thought that he was breaking the Sabbath, and they wanted to kill him for that. If you'll back up to verse number 19 of John 5, then answered Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, The Son can do nothing of himself but what he seeth the Father do. For what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. For the Father loveth the Son, showeth him all things that himself doeth, and he will show him greater works than these that ye may marvel. You've seen Jesus heal a man on the Sabbath day, but I want you to know that the Father is going to give greater works than that to the Son. Well, what could be greater than that? Verse number 20. Or verse number 21. For as the Father raises up the dead and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. Verse 24. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not pass into condemnation, but is passed from death to life. You think you've seen a miracle by seeing a physical healing, but a greater miracle is when the Father gives the power to the Son to quicken and to give eternal life to those who believe on Him. A greater work than a physical miracle is a spiritual miracle. I say to you that the greatest work that is ever accomplished is when a dirty, rotten, vile sinner bows his heart to Jesus Christ and finds forgiveness of sin and is quickened according to Ephesians 2 and verse 1 as given eternal life when he passes from death to life, when he passes from darkness to life. That is a greater miracle. There is something greater than healing the sick and casting out demons and multiplying loaves and walking on water. It is when you witness to your neighbor and the Holy Spirit takes your weak and feeble and frail and bumbling, stumbling witness and somehow breathes some power into it through the power of the Holy Spirit and uses it to convict a sinner's heart. And as you live the Christ life and as you share the gospel, the Holy Spirit preaches through you to bring them to Christ. That is greater works. 
context in the Gospel of John and even in the book of Acts, that greater works is conversion by God's grace. It's interesting that in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus said the greatest man who ever lived was John the Baptist. That's pretty high commendation, isn't it? Greatest man who ever lived, John the Baptist. And in John 10, 41, Jesus said, John did no miracle. you got to be kidding me. The greatest Christian who ever lived didn't do any miracles. Never performed one miracle. But I tell you what John did do. He stood on the banks of the Jordan River and pointed men to Christ and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. He took his disciples and said, Don't follow me. You follow him. And when John preached and men turned to Christ, that was greater works. Every once in a while, the Holy Spirit will allow me to witness. He'll just lay the opportunity out there to say a word, to give the gospel, to give a gospel track, and will somehow take my feeble and frail efforts and use it to speak to the heart, and they get saved. I have never, I have never fed the multitudes. I have never healed the sick. I have never raised the dead. But every once in a while, by his power, he allows me to see a sinner saved and translated into the kingdom of his dear son. And I say that is is greater works. He has left us with the promise of his power. There's a third thing I give you. Not only, not only has he left us the hope of heaven, the promise of his power. Go back to John 13. He's left us the assurance of his affection. In John chapter 13, he gives the disciples two demonstrations of love. There's a lesser and a greater. And his message is that I'm going to leave you, but I love you. It's the last time I see you. But let this thought ring through your mind no matter what the world brings that I love you. It is said sometimes that absence makes the heart grow fonder but it also can make the heart grow colder. And as the promise of his love grew faint in their ears through time, the demonstration never left their mind. In John 13, look at the first illustration quickly. Verse 1, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew the desire was come that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. Now verse 10, 2 through verse 11, he's going to wash their feet. You know the story, we'll not go through it. And he's washing their feet. It's a supreme example of humility. And that memory has to be burned in their mind. In verse 12, he explains why he did that. So after he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and was set down again, he said unto them, Know ye what I've done to you. You call me Master and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If, ye, if I, then your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I've done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. Skip down to verse number 34. A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. I've given you a demonstration. I've given you an example of my love by bowing before you and washing your feet. And as I have loved you, so you ought to love one another. Now, I don't believe that he's instituting a new uh, church ordinance, and I, I don't believe that we ought to wash each other's feet, but I, I believe that he's giving the example of the spirit, the heart, the love. That's what you are to do. You are to love one another. Look at chapter 15. 
That's the lesser. Chapter 15 is the greater. Chapter 15 and verse 12, he repeats it. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. How do we know you love us? Verse 13. Greater loveth no man than this, that a man laid down his life for his friends. And oh, I love verse 14. Ye are my friends. I've shown you that I love you by the lesser example of washing your feet, but in a few hours I'm going to the cross at Calvary and I am going to lay down my life and when you see me on the cross, I want you to know that I am doing that because I love you. The greatest example, the greatest demonstration of love is when a man lays his life down for his friends and you are my friends and I'm going to the cross and I'm laying my life down for there have been times I've doubted his will. And I'm ashamed to say that. There have been times where I wondered if the way that God was doing things was really the best way. But I have never doubted God's love for Mary. I've never for one moment in my life wondered, does God really love me? And the reason why is when I look at Calvary and I see him hanging on the tree, I know beyond, beyond any shadow of a doubt that he loves me. You may sit in this room this morning and wonder if your husband or wife really loves you. You may wonder if your parents really love you. You may wonder if anybody loves you. But if you could somehow get a glimpse of Calvary, you would know that he loves you. There's an American evangelist in the 1800s, D.O. Moody, you've heard his name. One night D.O. Moody was leading a revival campaign and the song leader, the song leader supposing to be there didn't show up that night. So D.L. Moody was stuck leading the singing by himself. D.L. Moody was a great preacher. He was not a great singer. So he started to lead the singing and wasn't a lot to it. But in the audience that night, there was a young man and woman sitting toward the back. Well, they stood to sing. This man started singing. He had a very booming voice. Just a voice that was heard above everybody else. It was so strong that people just kind of quit singing. It was so strong. Right after the service was over, D.L. Moody went straight to the back, made a beeline to that gentleman, and introduced himself to a young man named Philip Paul Bliss. P.P. Bliss. Philip Paul Bliss. To make a long story short, Philip Bliss became the song leader for several years for D.L. Moody's evangelistic campaigns. Was a great songwriter. A lot of the songs in your hymnal, Philip Bliss wrote, almost persuaded. Hallelujah, tis done. Hallelujah, what a Savior. The light of the world is Jesus. Songs like that. We sing a lot of his songs. On December the 29th, 1876, Philip Bliss and his wife finished a revival campaign with D.L. Moody in Ashtabula, Ohio. And that night they boarded a train along with 157 other passengers. That night, traveling through the night, that train went across a ravine, went across a wooden bridge that spanned a ravine, and the wooden bridge was not strong enough to hold the weight of the train. In the middle of the night, that bridge collapsed, and that train plunged 70 feet into the ravine below and exploded into flames. And in the flames, 92 people were killed. And among the 92 that was killed was 38-year-old Philip Bliss, 
his wife. The night before, Bliss had sang in that revival crusade to a crowd and he sang a song that he had just written and he had never sang before. He only sang it one time. The title of the song was I'm Going Home Tomorrow. Rescue workers came out and tried to salvage as much of the wreck as they could, try to help whatever survivors there were. And in all of the wreckage, they found a suitcase. When they opened it up, they discovered that it belonged to Philip Bliss because of his personal effects. And in that envelope, there was a, there was a, um, or that suitcase, there was an envelope. And on the back of the envelope, there were some scraps, just some words that Philip Bliss had written to a song that he was working on. He had never published it, never sang it, and hadn't really finished it. And on the back of that envelope was the words to the last poem that Philip Bliss ever wrote. Some of those words said, um, I will sing of my Redeemer and His wondrous love to me. On the cruel cross He suffered from the curse to set me free. Sing, oh sing of my Redeemer. With His blood He purchased me. On the cross, he sealed my pardon, paid the debt, and made me free. I don't care what this world throws at you. I don't care what dark days are ahead. If you can get a glimpse of Calvary and know that he loves you, it'll sustain you till the day that he returns. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, there is nothing, there is nothing in this life that is more important than knowing you know God. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, I promise you that if you'll bow your heart in repentance and faith and trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, your Savior, He'll forgive you of every sin. He'll give you a home. We certainly hope that you've enjoyed this message today, but more importantly, we hope that the Lord has challenged you in some way to grow in your Christian life. For more information about our church, including directions and times of services, please visit our website at www.capitalcitybaptist.org.